The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and I hope all the dads listening had a wonderful Father's Day. It's also June 10th, June 19th, 2023, as we bring you a new episode. When we preview the month of June, we knew this West Coast road trip visiting the Dodgers and Mariners was going to be tough for the White Sox. Sure enough, they finished 2-4 as they lose 2 out of 3 at Seattle over the weekend. Probably should have been a sweep for the Mariners, but Zach Remillard came to the rescue. We'll talk about Zach Remillard's big day, and how about Lance Lynn's career day? 16 strikeouts and 7 innings of work tying the franchise record. We'll share what worked so well for Lynn against the Mariners. But for how much we want to pump out the positive vibes regarding the White Sox, the bad stuff is quite heavy. And I worry some of the bad is now coming from the managerial position. The honeymoon period is over for Pedro Gafal. And we'll also talk about the challenges he faces and the challenges he's created for himself. At the end of the show, we'll preview the White Sox next series at home as the mighty Texas Rangers visit. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis and Jim Happy Father's Day. Did you do anything fun with uh, Mini Margulis on Sunday? Well, thank you. And actually, my parents are here. So my dad and I did dad stuff, uh, replacing a mailbox, replacing a thermostat. <laughs> Real enjoyable stuff, but stuff that needed to get done. So, yeah, that was my father's day. That's awesome. So did you get the uh, fancy thermostat? Because, you know, they have all this uh, high-end technology thermostats that you can, like, control with your smartphone and stuff. Yeah, I went that route just because my, I have an old-fashioned one that uh, inherited uh, with the house. And I, during uh, the record cold snap, uh, when the heat was not working, uh, I was looking through the manual, and it was just pages and pages and pages of blank buttons saying like if you hold it down for 15 seconds this will pop up if, then you hold this button down for five seconds and like by the end like you get to the uh last uh page and be like note this option may not be available in all models I'm like oh great so i spent <laughs> 
15 to 20 minutes as uh, the temperatures are plunging, watching, you know, nothing happens. So I just, I want one I can understand and one I can easily troubleshoot myself. It has a, you know, robust, to use a recon word, uh, support system and online resources, YouTube videos, et cetera. So yes, uh, that's the route I went. Nice. We have one of those and it works pretty well, but yeah, sometimes uh, if, you, if you forget to set it, when it gets really hot, like unexpectedly in Chicago, when it's like it goes from 65 to 80 degrees and whoops, you got the heat on. <laughs> it can make things a little toasty in the morning. So I, I do enjoy the the high tech stuff in the home. But that's the, the, the home talk for this episode. Let's talk about baseball. Let's start with Lance Lynn and a really unexpected outing in a very good way. A career outing for Lynn on Sunday. He struck out 16 batters. That ties the franchise record for single game, most strikeouts. 15 swinging strikeouts. Most in Major League Baseball since 2019. Lynn generated 33 whiffs. That's the most in Major League Baseball this season. Passing Shane McClanahan, who had 32 whiffs against the White Sox earlier this season. So the Mariners had 61 swings against Lynn. And they whiffed 33 times. That's a 54% whiff rate, which is crazy. On the slider, the Mariners whipped six out of eight times against Lynn's changeup, which I didn't even know he had. They whipped five out of seven swings, and the cutter, which proved to be his most dominant pitch of the day, Jim. Ten whiffs on 20 swings. Jim, where has this Lance Lynn been? I don't know uh, is a good way to put it in terms of just like the velocity had uh, jumped up a little bit for him to where he was like routinely 93, uh, 94 versus like 91, 92. He really didn't let up in that regard. As you mentioned, the changeup um, strategically deployed. Like I thought early on, like, oh, he's going to be bombarding him. Giolito style changeups and he only threw 11, but still, you know, more than he usually throws. Uh, the cutter was really well located. So like whether or not it still has like the old life that it used to have, like he threw it in good spots. The mistakes for the most part were good, like well off the plates, non-competitive pitches versus missing in the heart of the zone, which has been really hurting him. So like he executed really well. Also just the, uh, I was targeting this start just because when we were looking at Lynn's splits and how susceptible he was to lefties, you're looking at the upcoming schedule saying like Dodgers, like, no, probably not. Like that's, that's a tough lineup with a lot of, you know, tough lefties and even Max Muncy missing. Like they still have depth and power from the left-hand side. Uh, David Peralta took them, took him deep and like, it was just took an ordinary lefty looking at the Mariners lineup not as talented on the left-hand side. So like, even if he struggled against the Dodgers and he had one of his normal starts, where it's like five, five innings looked like he might've gone to <laughs> at, the, at the very start, uh, toughs it out to get five. And then, you know, Griffal asks a six of them and doesn't go that well. But in this case, like I had the idea that maybe the Mariners will tell us like how well he can compete when he's not facing lineups that are maybe designed to destroy him. And yeah, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> I was <laughs> expecting him to tie Jack Harshman for the uh, you know uh, franchise single game strikeout record. Uh, yeah, did not see that coming whatsoever. But at least it was what I was hoping in terms of the Mariners are not that good from the left side, so maybe he can, you know, he can hold his own slash like throw a quality start and look like you know we don't ease up on the DFA talk one because. 
there's nobody to DFA him for. Right. And also like, because even if there were, there's nobody behind that person. So uh, there's still a lot of season left and he's not as bad as he can look in a given inning. He's not that bad overall to where like, you know, he's, he's the problem. As we saw when the White Sox lose a game, when he strikes out 16 over seven innings, there are a lot of other problems besides Lance Lynn. Yeah. Outside of the first inning though, against the Dodgers, which you, you pointed out, David Peralta hit that two run homer. Will Smith did a two run homer earlier in that inning for the Dodgers. The next four innings were scoreless for Lynn, and he only allowed two hits against the Dodgers. So since that first inning against the Dodgers, something must have clicked for Lance Lynn. And Kurt Hasler, before that Dodgers start, when he was talking to the beat reporters about what adjustments Lance Lynn's trying to go through, that he's trying to be more focused on the four quadrants in the strike zone with his variety of fastballs. Didn't see that early against the Dodgers because he just lived in the middle part of the zone. But that cutter, especially against righties, Jim, I feel like that's the most important pitch now for Lance Lynn because he is really trying to dot the outside corner. And against the Mariners, he was in the strike zone 50% of the time with the cutter. And it is breaking away from righties. And if righties can't tell if that's going to be a strike or not, and if they lay off and it ends up being a strike, this is where Lynn can continue to generate some whiffs, Jim. I feel like the cutter is a really important pitch for Lance Lynn now. It has been in the past. I think the difference in Lynn this time around is that he seemed like he was throwing different kinds of cutters. He was throwing like a variety of speeds, a variety of breaks. He had the, the firm one that barely moves, you know, maybe like a couple inches, but is more along the lines of like, let's see if we can, um, you know, nibble off a corner, like front door, a cutter on a right-handed hitter, but have some velocity in case he swings and not just rolling over the inner half of the plate. And then he's got that. He had that more of a sweeping variety of the cutter, the more horizontal movement against righties as a put away pitch. And so he had two kinds of cutters working for him. And in the past, he hasn't had one kind of cutter, maybe because, you know, it's a case where he only threw one kind of cutter, but, uh, he tended to get burned on that pitch. Like it wasn't working for him against lefties. Um, you know, it'd been okay at times against righties, but not really a quality pitch. And I think he found, you know, whether he, it would just have to be like lucky execution in terms of staying away from the heart of the plate. He only threw looking at his pitch map. Like he only threw like a couple that might qualify as heart of the plate. Some had like, you know, inner third, some had like bottom third, but like the middle, middle stayed away from that. And it seemed like, you know, when he's trying to hit the side of the plate, he did, he didn't miss by an entire side of the plate with it. That was good. And just the uh, ability to change speeds and have two different kinds of cutters, which I think was important as a put away pitch. Like he had like, it seemed like he had a weak contact pitch early on. And then he had a two strike, um, get him to chase pitch. Uh, and which is, I think is important for him just because we've seen him get burned on O2 so many times this season, just getting ahead, you know, a one, oh, two, one, two, and then middle, middle, bam. So it seemed like he did a better job of setting him up and then getting out of the middle of the strike zone, like not worrying about going two or three extra pitches. Uh, if he missed with one, he tried again, maybe a little bit better, but he wasn't so concerned about throwing strikes and being efficient, it seemed, uh, because either that or the Mariners are so good at chasing that he looked like a genius, <laughs> which is possible. Like maybe the Mariners had a really off day with the way they just pursued stuff out of the zone, but he really did seem like he had a handle on just 
two kinds of cutters and when he could throw them uh, and either get away with it in the zone or experiment out of the zone and get good results. Well, with Mike Clevenger on the injured list, the White Sox are pretty much a fan, a four-man rotation at the moment. They really do need this version of Lance Lynn to stick around, so hopefully he does as the next two probable starts for Lynn are against the Boston Red Sox and Los Angeles Angels. So some pretty tough lineup still for Lance Lynn. We'll see if this continues, but man, what a career day for Lance Lynn. 16 strikeouts in seven innings. Let's talk about the other unexpected performance over the weekend that pushes out some good vibes for the White Sox. Zach Remillard, your guy, Jim. He comes off the bench to replace Tim Anderson, which we'll get to that in a moment later in the show. Proceeds to go three for three with the walk, so he, he reaches on base four times coming off the bench. He has the game-tying RBI single in the ninth inning, and then the game-winning RBI in the 11th inning. Jim, you wrote about this on Sunday morning on SoxMachine.com, but this particular performance for Remillard, coming off the bench for his Major League Baseball debut, is a pretty rare occurrence in Major League Baseball history. It is. Um, you know, unfortunately, it's short-lived because he goes 0 for 4 in his second game, and so baseball <laughs> humbled him pretty quickly. At least he didn't strike out. But yeah, it was it was a nice, you know, story, I think, in a few regards. One is that like always good for a you know, we always like the old rookie stories, like big fan of the 28, 29, 30 to 34 year old rookie getting his first chance in the majors. Like that is, you know, always good stuff because if you were, you know, I, I would say like by and large, if you were a jerk uh, or, you know, terrible teammates had uh, terrible off field behavior that uh, people know about, but didn't necessarily report and you didn't put up like great numbers, you probably wouldn't last, you know, 28, 29 year old, you know, to be a 28 or 29 year old rookie, you'd probably filter out of organizations, play independent ball and kind of go from there. So usually there's like a typical medal to these guys that allow them to you know, be solid citizens and good teammates and, and do anything a manager asks of them. And they hang around like even like Remillard was a minor league free agent after last year. And he re-signed with the White Sox, showed up to spring training as a non-roster invitee. So they thought a lot of the, the person and the player and like the, what he contributes to minor league teams as an organizational player, even if they maybe didn't see him cracking a major league roster uh, anytime. So there's that. Uh, there's also the idea of, you know, give, given Tim Anderson's strange series in that, you know, he had that really boneheaded error, that throwing error. And then like he has that run and hits where he doesn't locate the ball and just jogs back to first and is doubled off. And then he gets benched inning later with like sore shoulder, which, you know, I don't know if that's true. Like, I don't know if that's a benching or, uh, you know, or just you know, actual injury. It's hard to tell with the timing and all, but just, you know, he had a strange out of it series. So having like Remillard come in, when Griffal is so reluctant to make a change and like Remillard kind of represents change for the sake of change. Like there's no reason to think like he's going to be uh, a, a decent major leaguer. Like he looks like a fringe 26 man might get a few shots here and there, a few cups of coffee, but just based on his track record and the fact that he wasn't doing all that well, triple a, like doesn't seem like he's going to make an impact on a bench. Uh, but the fact that they, took Anderson out, whether it was injury or just like Griffal seeing enough and just wanting to uh, take a break from having to watch him and bringing Remlard in and getting those fantastic results. Like I enjoyed it from that regard. Like 
making a change that needed to be made, even if for only like one day. And, you know, sure enough, you get a walk without swinging, you get a bunt single, which is, you know, a, a nice uh, piece of vision, I should say, from Remlar, just noting the, noticing the left side playing back and just dropping a functional bunt that gets into first without a throw. And you get coming up with two big hits, single through left side, a line drive to right center, and those are all within his skill set. Like he wasn't hitting, it was like a Sebi Zavala three homer game out of nowhere. It was just, uh, we've seen Remillard do this in minors before and he's had decent numbers here and there. So like he has the ability to draw a walk in the minors and like it all came together for one glorious game after some underperformance uh, and, and, and frustrating degrees of underperformance, which had gone uh, unattended for quite a long time. Uh, gets removed from lineup, gets removed from the proceedings, and the White Sox benefit from that. Like, I thought that was a nice, um, I guess the opposite of a cautionary tale. Like, it's a nice lesson of just, like, proactivity and, and making a change just because the status quo is untenable and seeing what happens. I think, you know, Remillard going uh, 0 for 4 and not a particularly, like, encouraging 0 for 4, just ordinary um, you know, shows the limitations of that. Like you need talent, you need a plan. And Remillard doesn't necessarily represent a plan, but he represented it for that moment, just doing something about a problem and seeing if you get better results. Yeah. We're going to talk about Tim Anderson more in a moment here, but the Remillard kind of reminds me of Danny Mendick in the sense of when you look at Remillard's story, Jim, upstate New York and upstate New York in your backyard, Revelard's done whatever the White Sox have asked him in the minors, much like Danny Mendick. Remember Danny Mendick would like, I would see him one box score. He's with Winston-Salem. A couple days later, he'd be in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And people like, wow, what a jump up. He must be really good. No, Charlotte just needed an extra body. And the White Sox don't have enough bodies to go. So they just literally drove Danny Mendick from Winston-Salem to Charlotte. And he didn't complain, even though he's being bounced around the affiliates and eventually gets to the major leagues. And he gets some play time and he impresses. And, you talked about Remillard. Yeah, he's 29 years old, and he's been through the minor league rainer. He gets called up because Yohan Mercado goes in the IL. and Another we'll status quo thing. Later. Another status quo thing. And Remillard does that. Like, in his Major League Baseball debut. And, yeah, he, to your point, he, he goes 0 for on Sunday. But, man, that's a pretty special moment for Remillard. And these are the stories of what makes cover – covering baseball fun at least for me jim compared to the other sports like you don't find these type of obscure moments often in football or basketball or hockey and i'm sure later this year or in future years of sporacles from ted that i'll get stumped on be like hey remember that zach remillard game and it's cool that he got this moment he may never get another moment like this again It'd be great if he did. Maybe he catches on fire. Maybe he's like Danny Mendick, and we have a debate for a month whether or not he's got staying power. But at least for one day, he prevents the White Sox from getting swept because I do think if Remler doesn't have that game on Saturday, mm -hmm. the White Sox get swept. Yeah. He saves the White Sox for a day, and he's the hero. And I think that's pretty special. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things we don't know when we're in the middle of a season is, you know, the White Sox being perpetually five and a half games back. It doesn't look like they have what it takes to close the gap, whether it's, you know, Minnesota finally putting together an offense or Cleveland getting everybody back. Although Tristan McKenzie injured again. Is hurt. So, yeah. 
I thought Cleveland was just about to start catching fire and nope, I think that's going to set them back some, uh, to have like that moment, that game at that time, like it could mean something probably won't, but you don't want to be so jaded that like, if it does, if the white Sox do close the gap, like that game counted, um, that game, yes. you know, helped them save a game in the standing. So, yeah, I mean, you can't get so jaded to say like, Oh, I wish it mattered. Like it does matter just because it might, if it doesn't, then you can kind of shrug it away and say like, neat story. Um, you know, and, and I think you can just transfer it forward to the next such minor leaguer that has that kind of call up. Like maybe he'll have another Zach Grunlard game. He at least provides a template for, for something that everybody likes seeing. Yes. And again, this is what makes baseball fun. And the 162 game marathon, we're going to see random things like this. Hans Alberto winning the game for the White Sox against the Minnesota Twins. Sevi Zavala winning a game for the White Sox against the Yankees. Zach Revillard winning a game for the White Sox against the Mariners. We've seen some random outcomes so far for the Chicago White Sox in 2023. They could use more of these. They could use more of these types of performances from their impact players. But those are the two cool things that happened over the weekend. Lance Lynn's big day, Zach Remillard's day. But now it's talk about time to talk about some bad things. And so we'll talk about Tim Anderson and Pedro Grafal as these issues are related after a quick word from our sponsors. I'm sure many of you had this debate with significant others and friends about how fashionable cargo shorts are. As someone who has fought these battles and has been willing to die on the hill about the benefits of cargo shorts, I found a new light. In my attempts to get into more shape, I've lost a couple of pants short sizes, so it was time for a new wardrobe fix, and I discovered a apparel company called Bird Dogs. They make a wide range of gear, but they get high marks for their shorts. After receiving a pair, I understand the hype. Bird Dogs stretch khaki shorts have a slimmer fit, so it's more in line with today's fashion trends. It gives legs a sculpted look, but it's still a great fit around the waist, so I don't feel constricted. That's because Bird Dog shorts are not made with stiff, restricted cotton. Bird Dogs invented a cloud-knit fabric that looks just like khaki, but it stretches to get you a way slimmer fit without having to sacrifice movement, which is key for me. I want to look fashionable, but in a practical way. It's going to get hot in Chicago, I promise you. And if you are like me, wanting to up your shorts game, Check out Bird Dogs. Right now, they're running a special. When you make your order at birddogs.com, use promo code POOL at checkout to receive a free Yeti-style tumbler. Again, the URL is birddogs.com pool. Use promo code POOL at checkout for that gift. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. So the White Sox are 31-42, and, and because the Detroit Tigers won three out of four this weekend against the Minnesota Twins, the White Sox are back in fourth place in the American League Central as things are a little compact right now between Cleveland, Detroit, and the White Sox. In the month of June, the White Sox are 8-7, and seven, which with how difficult the schedule is for this month to be halfway through the month, that's pretty good. But unfortunately, pretty good is not good enough when you are still 11 games below 500. And the White Sox have a Tim Anderson problem. Out of 22 shortstops with 200 plate appearances in 2023, Anderson now ranks last in weighted runs created plus at 63. So he's the worst offensive shortstop in Major League Baseball right now. 
his war, according to Fangraphs, is still negative 0.2. When you add in the second base production for the White Sox, which is not very good, the White Sox have the worst middle infield production-wise in Major League Baseball. That's a problem. Now, when it comes to the Tim Anderson problem, this brings in Pedro Grafal because he's been asked about Tim Anderson in recent days. And it starts with Anderson's placement in the lineup. And we talked about this on Friday's Sox Machine Live episode, that you cannot continue to have Tim Anderson hitting leadoff when he's hitting this poorly. Grafal started to say, I haven't even thought about moving Anderson down the order. The following day, after Anderson has another clunker offensively, Grafal moves Anderson down the order, <laughs> bats him second because it plays into a strategy that Grafal talked out that he wanted to have Benetton to get on base and then Anderson to use his skill set to hit the ball to right field and try to create more first and third situations for Luis Robert, Andrew Vaughn, Jake Berger. All right. You can kind of follow that line of logic. In that game, Benetton reaches on an error. Here comes Anderson. Grounds right into a double play with a grounder to short to shortstop. His next plate appearance, Anderson reaches on a walk, so you do have runners on first and third. And then, as Jim mentioned before, Anderson gets doubled off at first base because he's stealing. He doesn't even bother looking back to home plate, doesn't realize that Luis Robert fouled out, and that is an easy double play. So two plate appearances on Saturday, both resulted in double plays, a grounded to a double play, and a two plan. When asked after Saturday's win, thanks to Zach Remillard, Grafal being asked about if Anderson will play on Sunday, Grafal said, I have to ask Timmy. Well, Sunday comes, there's no Anderson, but Grafal bats Remillard second, and Jake Berger bats eighth in the lineup, which has B reporters asking Grafal about the lineup again, because why are you batting one of your best home run hitters eighth? And this comes from Daryl Van Scowen on Twitter. And uh, he tweeted out Grafal's quote, quote, I'm going to put the lineup out there. I think is going to help us win. I don't have to answer those people who don't like the lineup. He's in the lineup. He's going to get four at bats, help us win. Other than that, they could talk to Jerry, end quote. Well, we talked about how awesome Lance Lynn was, but Grafal pushed Lynn into the eighth inning, one chase of the franchise record, which, okay, I can understand if that's what Lynn, had want, Lynn wanted. Two, to prevent the bullpen to pitch in this series, two pitches in, a bunt single that Lynn couldn't cover because he was exhausted. And Grafal goes to his guy, Ronaldo Lopez, who, guess what, continues to make a mess out of things for the White Sox because Grafal can't quit Lopez. Mm-hmm. Jim. <laughs> when it comes to Pedro Grafal, like it, it's easy to it's easier to talk through the Lance Lynn situation, and I've seen a lot of this at college baseball, and that's why I made the reference on Twitter that Grafal's been watching too much college baseball because some of these uh, best pitchers are throwing 120 plus pitches in their starts, and that's not what you want to see with the Major League Baseball draft upcoming. But I feel like Grafal is getting very defensive all of a sudden with people questioning his decision-making. And his decision-making should be questioned because the team is still 11 games below 500. They're still like 8-7 and seven in June. They're, they're playing better baseball, but better than whatever it was in April is not a very high bar to clear. What do you make of Grafal's latest comments, especially when it comes to the lineup? 
Who can talk to Jerry? <laughs> I... I can't believe he he mentioned Jerry Reinsdorf. I I thought Rick Khan was your boss. Is Rick Khan not your boss? That would be my follow up question. Why shouldn't we talk to Rick? Why yeah. why do we got to talk to Jerry? <laughs> Maybe Rick's not yeah. in charge anymore. Well, that would be enlightening. All, no, yeah, it's just like well, first nobody can talk to Jerry, so like there's that, but also just yeah, it's. Oh, um, yeah, there are a lot of things, a lot of ways you can go with this. I'll start by saying like Lance Lynn, I was happy he started the eighth because like, that's an old record. I want to see like one crack at that record. And sure enough, like, you know, Colton Wong bunts his way on, like lineup turns over. Okay, fine. But like, I would have been disappointed if Lynn didn't come out for one chance to get 17 strikeouts for the first time in franchise history. That's cool. That's something that like we might remember seeing and talking about for the rest of your fan lives. I mean, the way like people who followed Jack Harshman's career and Jack Harshman had a really cool career, by the way. But like, you know, people who followed him could talk about like, oh, yeah, he was good. Like it, it's neat to see that. So like I appreciate that. We've seen Griff. The tough part is we've seen Griff fall start an inning with a starter who shouldn't start an inning and mm -hmm. it blends into all those mistakes. But this is the one where I can say an exception, like yes, strikeout records, all time franchise strikeout records, or at least for a you know, single game record is cool. Go for it. At least one crack. See if it happens. So set that aside. Like I don't, blame Griffal for that the way I would like if, if Lynn were at 13 strikeouts if Lynn were at 13 strikeouts and 114 pitches like no mistakes starting the eighth so yeah there's that um Lopez is tricky just because like we talked about this um on the live show saying like man I wish I knew if he was throwing 198 and sure enough the triple he gave up was a 97 mile per hour fastball at the knees like not a good pitch like he needs to ride upper half of the zone with 99 100 to make that slider work but he, when he's throwing low fastballs and they're not his best fastball like he is so ordinary so that's what i don't like about going to him in that situation he's shown flashes of it uh, of being like a good high leverage guy but when he has that combination of high 99 mile per hour fastball and low sliders when his fastball is spraying all over the zone and it's um below his best velocity like yeah he's like a mid-leverage guy at best sometimes, especially how susceptible he can be to lifting the ball and getting like, you know, doubles, triples, homers on him. So I don't get that call. And uh, he seems to go to Lopez a lot. But yeah, the Tim Anderson thing, like I don't get, I think, why he's like, you know, he's just treading so softly around this underperformance. Like he's hurt. You know, he he made the excuse that he's playing with a knee brace or played with a knee brace, might have screwed up his mechanics. Sure, but just, you know, knock him down the lineup, reduce his responsibilities and point to the injury. Like that's all it's you know, it's you're not insulting him. Say like I don't think he has anymore. He's not giving us enough. You can say like we need him in the lineup, we need him at shortstop, or I should say we need him in the field. Uh, we'll do what we can in the lineup to make sure that he can contribute. And we're getting the best from him, putting him in position to succeed. Other guys can step up and help out. Like that's all that seems to need to be said without saying, Oh, there's a crisis. The white Sox are undermining their leader or they don't think you know, they have a crisis of faith with what he can do to drive the offense. Like, no, he's not the same player right now. And just when you're talking about, and, and the thing that bothered me about that quote is like, he said like 92 games left in the season and like 92 games is not that many games. It's not like a hundred plus. It's not, you know, you're talking about like 
double digit amount of games. He doesn't pay attention to the standings, but he knows how many games are left. And so like, how does he know is, that he doesn't, ha- he doesn't look at the internet. He doesn't look up the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like maybe he's a newspaper he just, guy. Yeah. He just comes <laughs> off as like, yeah. And I keep coming back to this word. Like he's so stiff and he doesn't have a personality. Like even like in good moments, spring training, there wasn't any lightness there. Uh, interviews with friendly people, like you know, either podcasters who have known him for a while or like Eduardo Perez gives him nothing. And now that, you know, it's, there are 92 games left or, you know, 90 games left. Uh, and they just can't string together. Like, you know, now they, they've given up the ground. They're basically back to 500. They've lost three series in a row in terms of, uh, this, this last hot stretch they were on. Um, you know, now that they're sliding back and these decisions are magnified, as you said, getting defensive, like, you know, there hasn't been any charm about the way he's gone about. Like, he seems like a decent person. Like his family seems really nice. Like the introductory press conference was great. Had a nice father's day message before the game. Like, you know, he seems like, he seems like a decent person, but like in terms of like a public figure and the guy voicing the direction of the team on a daily basis with reporters, there is really no charm whatsoever. And so when things are not going well and decisions don't make sense and he doesn't really make an effort to explain them aside from saying, talk to Jerry, like it's, it's very unpleasant. And, um, you know, to go back to the Zach Remillard thing, like, you know, Zach Remillard has hung around for as long as he has, despite like hot and cold performances and being largely like, replaceable as a an offensive performer just because like he's nice to have around you know people like having him around he always helps out he's like the uh you know he's the first guy to show up and help set up and he's the last guy to leave and and clean up like he's he, he goes above and beyond because his skill set is limited like Griff Griffal, he's not really showing much and he's not giving anybody anything in terms of just a sense of the person and whenever he does veer into memorable quotes, they're not good. <laughs> so just, I, 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 I fear for him a little bit in terms of like, this is his chance. And I'm not sure if he wasn't prepared for it or if just nobody told him like, um, you know, you have to show more of a personality or you have to show more of a sense of a person behind decisions. And you have to understand that you don't have credibility yet. Uh, yeah. You know, especially where the white Sox are like, it's, it's really tough. And I, yeah, I just wish that he would show more. It's kind of like <laughs> at the same time, like it reminds me of like Rob Manfred um, talking about A's fans and, you know, oh, basically God, just being terrible. Yeah, speaking of defensive, like whenever he gets uh, questioned about something where he might not be, he just turns into a sneering jerk. Yep. And there's no sense of that he, he, you know, there's no real sense of his personality. And when he shows a personality, it's sneering jerk. And like Griffal doesn't have that. Griffal's not that bad. Griffal's not Rob Manfred bad, don't get me wrong. But just uh, when the only thing people can identify you with is just uh, one, like they quote, uh, you know, introductory press conference we're going to prepare every night to kick your ass and it's been the farthest thing from it but just when you don't seem to have any answers you know in terms of your decision making um and then when you're questioned about it you don't have the answers for them and you defer to people or deflect or uh snottily tell them to you know 
talk to somebody that nobody can talk to who's invisible to fans and anybody who you know tries to represent fans uh asking questions to the people in charge like yeah it's just it's so unpleasant and i think for a guy like Griffal, like who's supposed to be you know the communication master his communication skills with people outside the organization are really lacking so bob nigel last week was on 670 score on mully and hall and he made a comment during his segment with them about Grafal, as Nigel said that he's done nothing for the White Sox. And also in that same rant, uh, believes that Tony LaRusa deserves another plaque at Cooperstown for winning with the White Sox, which was very odd and very telling uh, that Bob Nigel is or loves Tony LaRusa. And I'm sure LaRusa makes a great source for Nigel still of what's probably going on with the White Sox. But there were many that I saw when Nigel made that comment last week from the White Sox, let's call it blogosphere, quickly pushing aside Nigel's comments about Grafal, suggesting it's crazy to cast blame on Grafal for the team's underachieving 2023 season. And I could understand that. I could understand if your point is that Grafal is not the biggest problem. And maybe he's not the chief reason why the White Sox are 31 and 42, but Jim... I don't think he's helping matters, if that makes sense. Like, I haven't seen anything from Grafal in the first 73 games of his managerial career to suggest that he's going to push the right buttons. Like, this White Sox team is very dependent on the players. Players who are often too hurt uh, <laughs> to provide an impact. So if there needs to be a spark, if someone in charge needs to shake things up, I don't think it's Grafal, especially if Grafal is now pointing the direction to, well, if you got problems with me, go talk to Jerry Reinsdorf. Like he's the, he's the third White yeah. Sox high ranking front office executive. Rick Hahn, do you think you should still be the GM? I don't know. Go talk to Jerry Reinsdorf. Kenny Williams, do you think you should still be a charge? I don't know. Go talk to Jerry Reinsdorf. Pedro, why is your lineup like this? It is because I say it is. If you got a problem with it, go talk to Jerry Reinsdorf. Like, really? An 87-year-old man is responsible for this organization? Like, again, it brings up a, a very popular Dan Bernstein quote. Who is in charge of the Chicago White Sox? And I, I just... I'm hoping that I, when they hire Pedro Grafal, I was hoping that he could light a spark. He could be that authoritative figure that Liam Hendricks mentioned last year is what the White Sox really need in that clubhouse. I'm not seeing it from the outside, especially if he's wishy-washy with Tim Anderson, doesn't want to hurt his ego or hurt his feelings, move him down the lineup when he is clearly struggling. He clearly has his guys. And he will continue to play his guys. And I don't know why they are his guys other than maybe they live in Miami. I'm just really baffled. And if he's going to get defensive when things maybe don't go so well, and they may not go so well, and he doesn't have 90 games, by the way, to your point, he's got until July 31st of the mm -hmm. trade deadline to write this ship or somebody else is going to pick a different ship or pick a different direction the ship is going in. Yeah, I just, again, he, he may not be the chief reason, but I don't think he's helping matters. It was funny you mentioned the Nightingale thing, because when he said they can talk to Jerry, my thought was, does Jerry actually like him? 
like because given that Reinsdorf is uh, very much a source for Nightingale as well, like Larusa, you know, they're they're buddies too, so it's just like they could be coming from either of them. But you know, we don't know what Reinsdorf thought because like he's not present for any kind of talk about the current White Sox product. But I remember Rick Hahn saying that, you know, during the process when Hahn was gushing over Griffal, that uh, Ryan's were saying, wow, this is a lot like the Bulls process. And then, like, the results are this bad. And he might think, why can't I just hire my buddies? You know, <laughs> why, why did I bother going through this? So to me, it, it struck me as like, oh, that's kind of bold. You know, like, you know, it's the lawyer thing. Like, you know, don't ask any questions you don't know the answer to. Like, you don't want to bring a witness on the stand <laughs> if you don't know what that witness is going to say. So, yeah, that's a, um, I, I thought that was bold, but yeah, it's just, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it seems like when reading his quotes, like the common thread of his quotes is like, he tries to spin everything with, I'm really proud of this person. Like Yo Makata, not, you know, not giving the White Sox anything. He's playing with the back, really proud of what he's playing through. Tim Anderson, you know, given what he, you know, the problems he's had as a catalyst in the order. And now the, the mental mistakes are piling up as well. Well, you know, he's playing through a knee problem, really proud of what he's playing through. Lance Lynn gives it four runs in the first inning, like really proud of how he recovered. Like he always tries to spin things positively uh, that, you know, there's always a reason why they're compromised and they're doing the best they can, which is maybe true. But when you keep saying that over and over again, and as I mentioned, like you don't have any, anything else about your personality or the way you interact with people that takes any, um, any emphasis off the quotes or, you know, do anything to give reporters or fans a sense of you as a person to think how you're thinking. Like, it just looks like, man, you're just, are you just trying not to upset the room? And, uh, if the room changes and uh, at July 31st and all of a sudden they're rebuilding, retooling again, and who knows what happens with Rick Hahn, uh, like, are you even going to be there? So yeah, it's, it's weird. Like I imagine like it's, if the White Sox got off to a decent start this year and Griffal had like, you know, maybe a month and a half of 500 uh, baseball and they're only two games out or something like that, or maybe like, you know, contending with the lead and all it takes is one good series to jump ahead of Minnesota or Cleveland or what have you. Like I imagine it's a lot different a conversation, but just given how bad of a start they got off to, and given Griffal's real lack of a resume when it comes to like, he's hired from a losing team. He's has no major league experience as a player. Like the two things that give you credibility in the eyes of fans who don't know what you're about are not there. Um, yeah. There's not a whole lot to work with here <laughs> from the outside. And uh, when the same mistakes keep being made over and over again. I mean, some of it's the players. You don't want to take the stress out the players because this roster just doesn't work. I think it's fair to say like the, yeah. the offense doesn't function too many of the same people. Uh, they still don't have an idea of how to handle injuries and they still seem to have poor communication over how hurt somebody is, which I thought was like the simplest thing to solve about the Larusa era. And evidently it's sticky. not. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> So that's mainly the big way I'm revising my assessment of Tony LaRusa era is like, why are they still playing guys who are hurt or not admitting how hurt guys are? I thought that was just LaRusa not wanting to give up on Larry Garcia. And it turns out like I was wrong about that. So yeah, that's, that's what I don't get about this whole roster and the organization. But Griffal, like he just doesn't have any of the normal benchmarks of like, here's why this guy's the manager right now. 
to fall back on. And, you know, perhaps the pressure is getting to him because like, yeah, if he, if this opportunity doesn't work, there's not going to be another opportunity. And um, not in the majors. I I could see him landing at college baseball before, uh, I think a couple of years ago, Florida state pursued Pedro Gafal for their head coaching job. But with the way that college baseball programs are paid head coaches now, uh, it would be that much of a pay decrease for Gafal if he went for the majors to college. But I do agree with you. If this doesn't work with the White Sox, he's not getting a second chance. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he'd be a great recruiter, you know, if his interpersonal skills are so good. And like, if he can, you know, if, he, if people love the way that, he, uh, if players love the way he talks to them one-on-one, like, yeah, maybe he'll be somebody who can recruit, but it, yeah, it's just, it, it feels, he feels like he's not big enough for the task. Like, that's kind of how it feels. He just feels like a, like I mentioned the word relevant. Like he, it feels like he has no relevance to the proceedings. He's just kind of going along for the ride. I, I wish that weren't the case and I don't like saying it because it feels uninformed to say so, but I just don't, you know, I, I don't have a feel for the guy and, you know, perhaps like if Rick Renteria were thrown into the same situation and he, uh, you know, a roster that mal that malfunctioned for years, basically, or at least a year and a half before he was hired, uh, fell apart on him. Like maybe we'd have no impression of him as well, mm-hmm. but, um, just given that, uh, you know, they're, they're, he's kind of holding a wet paper bag until just it gave way. And now he just, you know, he's staring at the ground saying like, I don't know what to do with this. That's kind of how it feels to me. It doesn't help matters that Bruce Bochy and the Texas Rangers, which we'll talk about that team in a moment here. Fantastic start. The Marlins have a first time manager and they're in second place in the national league East. And one of the big surprises in the national league, the Marlins have won 12, of their last three games. And the Cincinnati Reds, that Reds team that we had the meetup for, is now in second place, catching Milwaukee and Pittsburgh. They've been red hot as of late. The San Francisco Giants have won seven straight games. They have won 21 of their last 30 games, and now they are in second place in the National League West. Arizona and San Francisco are in first and second the National League West. The Dodgers and Padres are third and fourth. That is big surprises. And that's what we're seeing in the National League and with the Texas Rangers in the American League. So first-time managers, we're, we're, we're seeing like instant impact, especially at Texas and Miami. And yeah, they went to di- two different directions, and Bruce Bochy would be kind of a similar hire as Tony La Russa, and the Marlins went with the first-time manager as well. Uh, Skip... Uh, why Schumacher. Thinking, yeah, Schumacher uh, being their manager. That's the type of run the White Sox need to go on. If they're going to get back into this thing, they need one of these runs that we're seeing right now in Cincinnati and Miami and San Francisco. Teams that have similar talent as the Chicago White Sox. They're doing that. Why are the White Sox not doing that? <laughs> on the other hand, there's Matt Quattraro, who... Uh... That roster yeah. stinks. I, I, yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, I'm sorry for Matt. That roster stinks. Yeah. Just, but that's a case where like, Oh, I, I don't think he would have been the guy for this case either. Cause that's another one where the fans just don't have a sense of the guy given how bad everything has gone. And he's just not really showing a lot to me like that. You know, even if it wasn't Bruce Bochy, like Ron Washington was another guy yep. who I think about in terms of just, even if the white Sox roster didn't work, he's somebody who's comfortable talking to the media, comfortable talking to fans, radio stations, Fun guy, charismatic. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have a sense of the person, even when things aren't going well. 
he seems like he could do more to just either inspire confidence or, you know, he's seen a lot. He's been through everything, you know, as a player, as a manager, as a coach. Um, yeah, yeah, he took, he took, he managed the team to the world series back to back years. Yes, they didn't win, but he's been there. He mm-hmm. just got a world series reign with the Atlanta Braves. He helped fix Marcus Simeon. I, yeah. I, I, I'm with you. <laughs> he's, like, and he's battled like he's overcome personal, you know, ad, uh, addiction issues in his life. Yes. So like he's, he's, he's lived a life. <laughs> he's, you know, inside and outside of baseball to where like he, he under, yeah, he has perspective that I think like somebody like Griffal doesn't have. And I think for a situation like this, like that's why I was intrigued by the idea of Washington because like, yeah, when the roster doesn't work this much or you got to get crazy or you have to like either stick to ideas that might not work. Like you want somebody who can at least sell it. And, you know, Washington, he had some unconventional lineup issues and such, you know, just kind of like an old school manager, but like with a personality, like players, love playing for him. Like those Rangers teams love the guy and the you know, bloggers didn't necessarily love him because of some, you know, issues they have with the lineup and, you know, relievers and whatnot. But just like you understood as a leader, why people gravitate toward him towards him. And like, I, I think for a roster where it just didn't work. And if like, uh, needed somebody who could, you know, kick him in the butt, but also like either defend them to the media or distract the media with just being, you know, a charm offensive, basically, which Washington has, like, uh, you know, Griffal just doesn't have that. So when it gets bad, it just stays bad. And like, you know, LaRusso is the same way. Like it was bad. And he was just, he was not his old self. He was checked out. Like he probably had some of his clubhouse, uh, management ability still intact, but in terms of like relating to the public, um, you know, could not show it, uh, whatsoever. So like he did not have his full array of skills, um, you know, Washington, I think just, you know, that he remained engaged in the game and that he, you know, still showed ability to succeed in all sorts of different roles, with all sorts of different players, all of whom loved working with him. Um, like I think he's one guy, I think maybe not would have changed the White Sox fortunes because I think there is something fundamentally wrong with this, but just would be able to present a whole, you know, cast a whole different light on, the way the White Sox clunkily go about their business and would have made it at least more palatable. I think they would have listened, especially to Manderson. I I think this roster would have listened more to Ron Washington because, hey, he comes from the Braves. <laughs> that Braves yeah, team's I mean, really good. Castro did, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he's not, not, not the same type yeah. of role, though. Yep, I I get I do get what you're saying, but like, hey, this guy came for the Royals. He watched us all the time, and he knows us really well. Well, all I know is the White Sox are 31 to 42 at fourth place, still in the American League Central as they enter this uh, last homestand in the month of June. They will not be home until Fourth of July week, and that's the final week before the All Star break. Not an easy week for the White Sox. We'll preview it next of the Sox Machine Podcast. Buy tickets to your favorite events should not be stressful, and game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater shows near you. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can stop stressing over the tickets and start getting hyped for the fun you'll have. And we all know, buying tickets today to events 
man, it can be a very frustrating experience, especially if you're trying to go to big events, waiting in line, and the queue is for hours at a time, or your spot on the line is like 20,000, and it just doesn't seem like you're to be able to get tickets for these big time events. But game time is the place for last minute ticket deals. Forget planning months in advance. Game time has deals on tickets right up to the day of the event. They also have exclusive flash deals on tickets for all the sporting events, concerts, comedy shows, theater, and much more. And the game time guarantee means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section in row for less, game time will credit you 110% of the difference. It's a big part of why they're the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason and they also have images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive you can buy tickets in a matter of seconds two taps and you're set and tickets are sent directly to your phone you never have to dig through your email to find the tickets so you can snag tickets without stress on game time download the game time app create an account and use our promo code socks machine for $20 off your first purchase and use it for the upcoming White Sox homestand. Some big games for the White Sox. The Texas Rangers are coming into town next week. The Boston Red Sox in the weekend series. Definitely use game time to buy tickets for those games. Again, create an account and use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, the Chicago White Sox are back at home. They're a 500 team at home. They need to be playing better than 500 baseball, though, to make up some ground in the standings. It does not get any easier for them Monday through Wednesday as the mighty Texas Rangers are visiting the White Sox. The Rangers are 44-27. They're first place in the American League West. Kind of a little bump in the road. In their last 10 games, they're 4-6, and six, but they've won their last two games against the Toronto Blue Jays. On Sunday, the Rangers were down by 6, and so they stormed back to win that game. The Texas Rangers this season have scored 10 or more runs 17 times. That leads the majors. They have a plus 148 run differential, <laughs> oh, which is just crazy. And they're 20-14 and 14 this season on the road. Their offense, though is a bit different when they're on the road. On the season, they have a team OPS of 797. That's the third best offense in Major League Baseball. When they are away from home, that team OPS drops to 742. So that's pretty dramatic. They hit 258, 327, and they slug 415 on the road. They don't hit as much as much for power on the road as they do at home. But the pitching staff, this is where it's a big surprise. The Texas Rangers are a top 10 unit. They have a team staff ERA of 3.79. That's the seventh best in Major League Baseball. So you got the third best offense and the seventh best pitching staff visiting the Chicago White Sox. Your pitching problems for this series starting on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are all 7.10 p.m. Central Time starts. The Rangers are going to be throwing out on Monday lefty Andrew Heaney. On Tuesday, righty Nathan Eovaldi, who's been fantastic for them. And then on Wednesday, lefty Martin Perez for the White Sox. To be announced. To be announced and to be announced. And that's the big question leading up to this series from a White Sox point of view, Jim. How do you think this pitching probables, as far as the pitching staff, like how do you think her fall and Ethan Katz is going to lay this out against the Rangers? Well, at first I thought like, when Jesse Schultens was called up to replace Mike Clevenger, 
uh, on the roster, I thought like, well, there's your starter. And then like when Schulten's pitched one relief appearance, I thought, well, maybe it counts as a side day and he'll still make a start. And then he pitched two games in a row and he actually recorded his first major league save and thought, well, okay, that's uh, either they're going to skip that (laughs) spot in the rotation or they're going to just uh, maybe make a tandem piggyback thing of it with, you know, Tanner Banks, who's throwing the ball. Okay. Maybe you can do like a, an opener bulk boy situation or just do like, see how long this guy carries us. And then if he only gets to three, see how long the next guy can carry us and then go from there. Like that's uh, how I think it might unfold. So that's kind of my, my thought now, but just uh, like, I, I'm curious, like whether they feel like comfortable starting guys in short rest or not, which really seems like that's where they have left themselves. But my guess would be like some kind of bullpen game first, um, just because like it seems like there's still a lot of season left to go short rest, short rest, short rest, unless they feel like, you know, whether it's Cease, um, you know, they can go to him on short rest and then buy a game with somebody else. Like, don't have a feel for it, but I guess this would be one good test for Griffal. Um, you know, to go back to Rick Renteria, like the thing that Renteria – maybe didn't spell his doom, but just one reason I understood why the White Sox might let him go is like, he never explored the opener, never explored alternate ways of starting until it was too late. Game three of the wild card series or the, um, yeah, the, the first round of the 2020 playoffs. And like he needed it and didn't know how to do it. And there's no reason to think he could. So like, here's a case where like, Oh, maybe we'll see Griffal get creative and understand like, here's something he brings to the table. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. But really when you look at like, just, um, you having the TBD, it sounds like if it's TBD for the first game, my thought is that uh, they're going to try to make some kind of, um, you know, just potluck arrangement out of their relievers. And maybe that's why they went to Lopez. or That's why Griffal went to Lopez and only Lopez, just to preserve all hands on deck for an all hands on deck game. I think a bullpen game against this tank, this Texas Rangers lineup could be disastrous <laughs> and he could really wreck the rest of this series. Like it's a tricky situation because let's say you go bullpen day and you throw out Tanner banks and he goes four innings. It gives up six runs, but you have to go four innings with Tanner banks, right? To eat up as much time as possible. You could burn out your bullpen on that first game. And then if you got Dylan Cease going on Tuesday, and Cease has been on a roll as of late. He's had three good starts in a row, but he's not Lance Lynn. He's not getting into the seventh inning for the Chicago White Sox. He, he's having difficulties getting through six innings for the White Sox. Like, you still need two or three guys behind Dylan Cease just to get through that game. Like, this is a tricky situation for the White Sox here. And, again, it would be it'd be very helpful if they had someone dependable as like starting pitch six that they could call up and just fill in for Mike Clevenger on Monday, uh, but they don't got that guy unless they surprise us like sending down Schultons for Nate Fisher. I don't think he, I thought he even just on the 40 pitched man recently. Roster. Well, he's oh, not on the 40 he? man, but I thought he just like pitched recently enough to where he wouldn't be on full rest. Do like you go, the, the, uh, do you go crazy? Like Sean Burke? I think that would be disastrous. Like that'd be putting him in position to fail. So see, but this, again, this is the problem, right? Yeah. 
when you don't have starting pitching depth, which is something that we talked about before the season could rear its head and ta-da, it's reared its head in the middle of June. This is the time to try somebody new, but you don't got that person to try out new to face this Texas Rangers lineup. So Monday is going to be tricky. Oh, I guess Fisher would actually be on regular rest, not regular rest for minor leagues because of their weird six game schedules. But like he would be last pitch on the 14th. So that is possible. Is he on the 40 man? He's not, but they have room. Okay. So me, I don't I would feel, I don't know how I'd feel. I wouldn't feel great about it, but at least, at least with Fisher, you'd be like, give us five innings. No matter how this looks, just just give us five innings and try to save as much of the bullpen as possible. Go Fisher and Banks and see how far you can get, even though they're very similar pitchers. Like, I don't think Monday's going to go very well for the White Sox. I don't think Tuesday's going to go very well for the White Sox, especially with how Nathan Eovaldi has been pitching. And uh, Martin Perez has been good for the Rangers in his career and even though it's two lefties, it used to be back in the day, Jim, when you saw two lefties, like, oh, this is going to be a great series for the White Sox offense. I don't know why they're not hitting lefties. I think not having Jose Bray in the lineup hurts a lot in that regard. Tim Anderson not hitting like he used to uh, is hurting in that regard. But any Mankata's, thoughts about, like... Mankata's swing from the right side is messed up. Yeah, so it's... Yeah, I mean, the past few years when you see Heaney and and Perez, you, you got hope that oh those could be good offensive days for the White Sox, but I'm I'm just not confident in the White Sox offense against lefties right now. They're they're struggling even this season. So again, this is a tricky series, and even though they're at home and they've been playing 500 ball at home, so they play better baseball at Guarantee Ray Field this year than they do on the road. This is still a pretty tricky series for the White Sox where. It could remind me of the series the White Sox had their their first home series against San Francisco, where you just have some embarrassing one sided losses where the White Sox are losing like twelve to four. Like that could totally happen in this series with the Texas Rangers in the town gym. It's possible. I'm kind of you know, not to say I'm looking forward to that, but I am looking forward to watching the Rangers. I haven't really watched much of them. I followed their box scores, followed their followed their performances just because of the whole you know, when they spent money on Corey Seager and Marcus Semien and, and it didn't go well mm-hmm. in the first year and just like, well, that, good thing the White Sox didn't do that or shows you, you know, what, you know, money can buy, you know, when you have other bigger problems. And like now they're both good, you know, like Marcus Semien uh, is a possible MVP candidate right now in the running and just doing everything the White Sox need in terms of like second base and playing every day and always being healthy and available and good. Like, just, uh, you know, the White Sox opting not to pay for that and the, and the White Sox getting what they pay for in terms of when they do try to cut corners. So I'm looking forward to seeing just, you know, firsthand what it looks like and how their offense functions. And, you know, I, every time I have a wake-up call, it seems like Nathan Eovaldi is throwing like seven to nine innings of excellent baseball. Like it just seems to line up yep. on my days. So like I'm looking forward to seeing him. Like if, if it doesn't go um, – yeah, if it doesn't benefit the White Sox, obviously, like that's a bummer. But it is nice, like when you see teams really make a push for success and see something for it. Um, that's a lot more fun to me as a baseball fan than like stories like the Padres or whatever. To where like you know it, it's um, you know it, 
it's something fans point to in terms of like why you shouldn't spend or why you shouldn't have an active off season and why or you the Mets. Yeah, yeah. Or why you shouldn't make your, try to make your team exciting. Like that's just, uh, yeah, I, I, that's not the way I approach it. Like I like the off season being exciting and I like teams that had like, exciting off seasons to have really exciting regular seasons because that would theoretically spur the teams that aren't exciting to try to get exciting. Yeah, the Texas Rangers, especially if Corey Seager can go this series, are going to have eight guys in their lineup with an OPS of 785 or better. <laughs> like their eight, yeah. their number eight hitter would be like the third best hitter for the White Sox. Like if Corey Seager could go, Seager's only played 40 games this year. He's got 10 home runs and 40 RBIs at 40 games, and he's got 17 doubles. He's hitting 363 with a 420 on base percentage and slugging 656. <laughs> That's an OPS over a thousand. Yeah. And uh, Marcus Simeon's got 10 homers, 54 RBIs. He's got 22 doubles. Odalis Garcia, 15 homers, 56 RBIs. Josh Yon, their third baseman, he's been having a very good year. He's got 14 homers and 14 doubles. This is a very powerful lineup. It's going to be warm in Chicago. We know the ball leaves that ballpark and we know that they're going to have some big time left-handed bats in this lineup for the Rangers. If Seager can go Nathaniel Lowe as well, he's got eight homers, 40 RBIs and 18 doubles. Like this is a very dangerous offense for this white Sox pitching staff. So again, if they don't pitch well, this is why it could remind me of that opening series against the giants where the Rangers add to their total of 10 plus runs scored in a game. Like it, this is a dangerous series for the White Sox. Also, I should add that the Rangers fired John Daniels last year. Like just wasn't working. They were spinning their wheels for years. New managers didn't really help them get out of it. Rebuild wasn't really doing much. Spending wasn't doing much. Like, so they fired John Daniels and they said he had a good run and he had like a really long run of success with the Rangers. And it just, they just admitted that it stopped working and they didn't seem to do it gleefully or anything like that. And Daniels took it like a professional and they moved on. And just another thing that you wish the White Sox would pay attention to. Like when your longtime head of baseball decisions just can't quite get it going again, it's okay to look for somebody else and okay to turn decisions over to somebody who hasn't been in that place before to see if you get better results. And with, you know, Chris Young being there, like so far, so good. Maybe he's benefiting a little bit from what Daniels did, uh, but still somebody different, somebody different, uh, you know, helping make decisions and Bruce Bochy bringing him in that maybe Daniels wouldn't have been inspired to do because he'd been hiring, you know, guys like Jeff Bannister and Chris Woodward, like other teams, coaches, maybe like, you know, just going to a GM or who has a former player who, uh, had faith in a experienced manager helping steer some of these roster issues. Like maybe that's what you can learn from, but uh, the white Sox sticking with Kenny Williams forever and Rick Hahn forever. And uh, through poor managerial hirings forever and just a tangled chain of command and not knowing who's ever in charge, like just seeing everything stagnate, like you wish they would, you know, look at other teams who are successful and say like, Oh, um, they fired the guy and they changed their leadership and that's why, and they won't do it, but still like, that's why I kind of pull for the Rangers just because they made moves. I wish the white Sox would make both as a, at a roster level. And then in a leadership level, when roster level moves weren't enough. 
And they didn't stop spending. I mean, they signed Jacob DeGrom. He's out for the year. So, yeah. Could have saw that maybe coming. But they signed Nathan Eovaldi. They got Andrew Heaney. John Gray. John Gray. They rebuilt their starting rotation. Dane Dunning has been stepped has stepped in and is doing well. Well, for John the Texas Gray's Rangers. last year, but still, like you know, just did they they just kept adding to the rotation. So like, none of these guys are homegrown, but they just you know kept looking for solutions. Yeah, and they could use the bullpen help. I'm sure the Rangers are going to use this series and scout the heck out of Kendall Graveman and uh, Joe Kelly. Like I I'm sure the Rangers will be doing that. So or Keenan Middleton. Or a Keenan Middleton or a Gregory Santos. I, again, I'm sure the Rangers are going to be paying close attention to the White Sox relievers because that is an area where the Rangers, that's the word out of Dallas and Arlington, is that they want to beef up their bullpen as this is a team that's serious about contending. They are a surprise team. They think they can hold off the Astros in the American League West, and we'll see how they do against the White Sox on the south side in the next three days. We'll recap this episode at Sox Machine Live on Thursday night after the White Sox play against the Rangers because they have the Thursday day off, and then they have the weekend home series against the Boston Red Sox, which we'll preview that series later this week. We'll have the White Sox wake-up calls. We got a lot of things covered your guys' way this week on SoxMachine.com. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. I'm so glad my voice held up. Thank you guys for working with me, dealing with me, losing my voice during the last few podcasts. I greatly appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Those are also our Instagram handles. Thank you guys to all the new followers. For those accounts, we also upload our podcast into our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash machine. So if you enjoy the video part, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash machine. If you enjoy our work and want more, you get more by signing up at patreon.com slash machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they are the first ones to receive it from the Sox Machine store. Monthly plans start at $2 a month, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash SoxMachine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all of Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching.